your scripture and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the second half of that chapter. And I'm so happy when I, when I look out and I see young adults and, and teens in our congregation that will hear this message that needs to be heard, not solely for them, for all of us, but this message has specific implications on our culture today that I'm glad that our young people will be hearing. Kids will play with virtually anything they can get their hands on. As parents, we can understand that. Uh, My boys take sticks, and all of a sudden the sticks, no matter what the shape are, are guns. Anything that they can get their hands on. So it's no surprise then that when the Dutch children of the town of Barneveld uncovered an unexploded World War II artillery shell, they began to play with it. In fact, they played with it for several months. That shell was still alive and contained high explosives. Thankfully, it did not explode. Eventually, the authorities learned about the shell and took it and detonated it in a safe place. Those who are not yet mature enough to recognize the danger of what they are doing. For children, the world is a playground, and even a bomb can be a plaything. Sex in our culture today is really viewed very much like a plaything, a fun toy that is to be tossed around from person to person on the playground of life. Paul says, playing with sex is like playing with an unexploded bomb. It's serious. It's dangerous. And that's what Paul is explaining to the Corinthians here, starting in verse 12, when he says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I'll not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not met for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought 
at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. First six chapters, as I said last week, is Paul responding to what he has heard that's going on in the Corinthian church. Division in leadership, undisciplined sin, taking other Christians to court like they did last year. And he has heard that the believers in the Corinthian church are still visiting the temple prostitutes. They were living as they had done before they became believers. They were engaging in casual sex. Much like today, those Christians are not allowing their new belief in Christ to affect their behavior. They're not allowing their belief to affect their behavior. There's a disconnect there. Today we have Christians who think it's just fine to have intercourse before you're married. That's, that's normal. Today we live, we have the norm is becoming in the Christian church for boyfriends and girlfriends to live with each other before they get married. That's, that's the norm, right? It's the norm to regularly and casually Look at pornography. That, that's what most of the culture is doing. Essentially living sexually immoral lives. Today many Christians have the same attitude as they did in Corinth at a time. Everything is permissible. That secular cultural attitude is seeping and has seeped and continues to seep into the Christian church. We hear, don't let anything inhibit your freedom. Don't let in, there's, there's no boundaries. If it feels good to you, it's right. All your appetites, including your sexual appetite, are good and normal and should be indulged in. Because it's just like eating food, right? But Paul says, not so. Your belief, what you believe, impacts your behavior. They're not disconnected. They're intrinsically woven together. What you believe has deep and wide impacts on your whole life. What you believe in Christ, what you believe as a Christian, impacts your marriage. What you believe in Christ impacts how you parent. Your belief in Christ impacts how you involve yourself in the community, how you relate to your enemies, what you do with your money, where and how you spend your time, how you speak, what you say, and what you do with your body. So Paul starts explaining this by teaching the Corinthians first that there is a grand implication on their freedom. Your belief, he's saying, has a huge impact on on your freedom, on what you think freedom is. 
In one sense, I could say one simple sentence that would explain Paul's perspective on Christian freedom, and it comes from St. Augustine. Love God and do what you want. That's really what it boils down to. That's really what Paul is saying here in verses 12 and 13. Love God and do what you want. Because living the Christian life, there is amazing amounts of freedom that we are given. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 8, verse 36, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We are free from the curse of sin, the grip of sin, the control of sin, and the penalty of sin in Christ. But we're also given amazing freedom to live our lives in Christ. Scripture we read today for for our public reading of Scripture actually helps in our understanding of that. I hope you read it carefully. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, Paul writes to the Galatians in in verse 1 of chapter 5. But then he goes on to say, Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. That's what Paul's coming back to here, but we'll get to that in a minute. He goes on in Galatians and says, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. That's exactly what Paul is saying here in verses 12 and 13. He's trying to explain to the Corinthians, those, those believers, what, what Christian freedom really is. Yes, you are permitted to do any. You're free, but the, their freedom has bounds that God sets. Here he gives two guidelines. He says, yes, you're free. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything you do will not benefit you spiritually, and it won't benefit others either. Not everything you do. So you have to think about what you're doing. Is this beneficial? Is this right? Will this benefit me spiritually and others? Or not? Paul's going to unpack that a lot more in chapters 8, 9, and 10 when he talks about freedom in Christ. But he says also in the second in the second part, everything is permissible, but I won't be enslaved by everything. He says, consider this, is what you are doing with your freedom leading you back into slavery to sin? Is the path of what you're doing leading backwards and not forwards? And visiting temple prostitutes, Then, being sexually casual and promiscuous now is going backwards. See, the conversion has implications on this aspect of your life. Let's go back to the list. It has an impact on your marriage. Your marriage is not for your self-fulfillment. It's actually... To show the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to glorify God. Your belief has an impact on your parenting. It's not so much to prepare them for a career. Your parenting actually is to prepare them to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. How you involve yourself in your community is not to be liked and well thought of, but to be light and salt. 
how you relate to your enemies is not for an eye to eye, eye to eye anymore. It's rather to take a, a, a page or a word from Paul, what he just wrote. It's wouldn't you rather be wronged and cheated? What you do with your money is not for our own self-satisfaction and enjoyment, but stewards of what God has given you. What, what do you want me to do with what you've given me, God? How you speak and what you say, not for tearing down anymore, but for building up. What you believe has a deep impact on every part of your life, including sexually. It's deeply connected. And that's what Paul gets at specifically for the rest of these verses. The specific implication of your belief on your sexual conduct. Paul writes in verse 13, he says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality. And in verse 18, he says, Flee from sexual immorality. The implication of your belief in Christ on your behavior is sexually don't engage in casual sex. Don't have sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend who you think you're deeply in love with before you're married. Don't do it, he says. Natural question is why? And Paul gives the Corinthians four reasons why. He says, he puts down the law, and he says, don't do it. And then Paul unpacks that. If you noticed in these verses, if you want a Bible hint on how to get at what the major point of the text is, one way to do it is what words are repeated. What words are repeated here over and over again? Nine times, body, body, body. That's the reason Paul is getting at. And that's what we're going to unpack here. The answer is all about your body. Flee from sexual immorality. That's Paul's simple law. Theologian and scholar N.T. Wright comments this. He says, if you give someone a rule, they may stick to it for a day or two. But if you teach them to think Christianly, you will help them go on making the right decisions on their own. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's helping the Corinthians, and he's helping us to think in a Christian manner about sex. So Paul helps us think Christianly about our body. And he says, stop playing with the unexploded bomb of casual sex. And the first thing we need to understand is that a Christian, that our bodies are eternal. Our bodies are eternal. Look at verse 14. Paul writes, By his power, God's power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us up also. Paul is saying here that our bodies are eternal. I mean, maybe just look at your body for a second and realize the implications of that. Your body, this body, is eternal. 
In Scripture, the body just isn't a shell that houses something for a time and then is cast aside. Scripturally, this body will go on forever. Forever. The body matters. That's a uniquely Christian viewpoint in all the world, people. Your body matters because it's eternal. This flies in the face of what the Greeks thought at the time, which is that matter was evil, the spiritual was good. So, of course, they thought that this body was just a a necessary evil for this time, a prison, so to speak, a jail for your soul that was good, that, that was to be released from this bad body. And so by, by Paul saying, listen, Jesus was raised from the dead, and by the way, bodily, so will you. That was, that was mind-shattering for them at that time. If your view of the body is that this is bad, and that the only thing that is good is your soul or the spark of life, or how, however we think about it, however you want to verbalize it, there's, there's really two ways that you will live. One way is to batter your body into subjection, to punish your body, to control all your physical appetites. This is what Paul is dealing with when he's writing to the Colossian church. They were, they were, this is their view that they had. And in chapter 3, he says to them, listen, you're buying in to that ascetic way of life. You're buying into don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. He writes, such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value of restraining your sensual indulgences. The second way you live, if you think that this body is is bad and is just a shell and to be discarded, is to let the body's natural impulses loose and live any way you want. This body doesn't matter. So I will do whatever I want. And that's where the Corinthians were. And that's where our culture is, people. Do anything you want with your body because it doesn't matter eternally. And Paul's correcting that. He's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. This hand will be with you for eternity. Your body matters. That's what we affirm together in the Apostles' Creed once a month, don't we? I hope you realize that when you say it. You're affirming this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin. There you go. If you are saying that, I hope you're believing it. Here at Southwest Harbor, when you become a member here, hopefully you're reading our statement of faith. Because our statement of faith says, we believe in the bodily resurrection of both the saved and the lost in the final judgment. That those who are lost unto the resurrection of damnation, and those who are saved bodily into the resurrection of life. 
Paul is going to try and explain this even more in chapter 15 when, when he addresses this centrally. Because they're asking about the resurrection. And so Paul says in 1542, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead, us. The body that is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. Our bodies matter because they're eternal. No other religion has this high view of the body. So high that Christ himself, God himself, took on a body. David Pryor in his commentary gives us real food for thought, and it's food for thought, people. He writes, our bodies are not dispensable in the ultimate sense. They are the raw materials for a glorious creation. Just think about it in that sense. You know, when I read that, I I sat back and I started thinking, you know, it reminded me of the Food Channel, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, where the chefs say, you know, if you want a great meal, you've got to start with great ingredients. You know, if, if, you, if you want a great meal, you don't get a rotten tomato in there. And, and if, if that can just be a shadow of application here, and I truly mean that, you know, this body matters, Paul is saying. What you do now with this body matters eternally. It's important. The second way to think Christianly is to realize that our bodies are fragile, that they are united, that they are a united body. Look at verses 15 and following. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him. All other sins a man commits outside the body are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Again, it was common, very common, to go to temple prostitutes. Just like it is very common today for those who are unmarried to engage in casual sex. It was then and now a very disconnected way of living. So Paul wants to help them think Christianly. And even though sex has no observable consequences on the outside, he says, there's no observable consequences on the outside. Paul's telling us that there are internal consequences, spiritual consequences We are deeply uniting ourselves with someone. We are deeply uniting ourselves with our sexual partner. That's what Paul means by we sin against our bodies. Our bodies are fragile. Today's culture is telling us that sex is the natural impulse. Be satisfied whenever you want that having multiple partners before marriage is, is normal. That's what, that's what is normal in our culture. 
that having sex outside marriage should should happen. That sex is a pleasurable act and no harm is really done when you engage in it. Teenagers, those that are young and not married, that's a lie. That's a lie. And you have to know that. Because you'll be told it over and over and over and over again. And I want you to remember this. It's a lie that that's normal. It's not. There's a deep uniting that goes on in the sexual act that we don't see. And he likens it to the, to the uniting that happens when we become Christians, doesn't he? says you're just you're united in Christ spiritually and then he goes on to talk about the uniting sexually that you have and he likens those he says you can't see the uniting that you are in Christ you you can't see that just as you can't see it sexually but it's happening all the same Jesus in his high priestly prayer says the pray My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. There's the uniting of the Trinity. And then he says, may they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. There's that spiritual unity, the unification. The Greek word there, kolomenos, means um, glued together, literally. So you're glued together spiritually. And sexually, when you enter into sex, there's a gluing together that's happening that you don't see on the outside, but that's happening each and every time you have sex with a different partner. The Corinthians are deeply uniting themselves with temple prostitutes. And we are deeply uniting ourselves as a culture with many different partners. And so Paul says, flee from that. He uses an imperative there. Don't do it. You don't know what you're doing. You're playing with this glue bomb And you're tossing it back and forth and it's exploding and you're not seeing the spiritual damage that's happening inside. You're being shredded up. That's why he uses that strong language. That's why he's laying down a law. Flee from it. It's for your good. Third, the way to think Christianly about promiscuous sex is to realize that our bodies are a temple. This is one that is preached on often, so I won't spend much time here. Verse 19a says that do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Paul wants to make clear that our bodies are not simply shells again, but they're actual spiritual locations for God. Think about that. Earlier in chapter 3, verse 16, he uses the metaphor of temple as, as the body of the church. But here he uses the singular, you, 
You are a temple. Your body matters. Your body is important. Each individual houses the spirit of God, meaning he goes where you go. Leon Morris commenting on this says, Whoever we go, we are bearers of the Holy Ghost, temples in which God is pleased to dwell. He says the, this rules out all such conduct as is inappropriate in a temple of God. It also means it's to be kept pure. The temple was a holy location. Much like this is considered a holy location. I, I, I personally believe that this is just a building and that it's not really holy until the people are gathered here in God's name. That this is just a building. But, but many people feel that this is a holy location. And, and just think of coming in here and doing some, something lewd here. We go, oh, we kind of recoil against that. Paul's saying, listen, the Holy Spirit is inside you, and it should affect what you do. And finally, it's an honor to have the Spirit within us. British pastor Derek Thomas, a a great pastor, wrote a book called How the Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home. And he recounts the time when uh, some birds made a nest in his, on his front porch and laid eggs. And he says, This beautiful, shy creature made her home almost in my house. I felt privileged that I had the honor of their presence here. If I felt privileged when a bird nests near my door, how much more privileged should I feel knowing that the Spirit has taken up residence in me. Our hearts should well up with gratitude and song at the mere thought of it. Lastly, Paul's helping us to think Christianly and knowing that our bodies are not ours. Our bodies are not ours. That's what he says in verse 19 and 20. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Let me tell you, if you read that, if you hear me say that, and you have any reaction in your heart and mind of, oh great, now I've got to do this. If you have any reaction, of a law reaction when I read that, you are totally missing the point. There's a great story in the Old Testament. It tells one of his prophets to marry a young girl. And God knew that this young girl was going to break his heart. And she does, over and over again. She hops from one lover to another, one bed to another. The story comes to a head when the girl finds herself in deep debt and destitute. She does one of the only things, the only options a a girl could do at that time. She puts herself up for sale to get out of debt. She sells herself into indentured servitude. She stands on the auction block, stark naked, ashamed, and the bidding starts. 
Then she hears a familiar voice. Five shekels. Ten shekels. Fifteen shekels. Sold. She's been brought back. She's been bought back by the man that she has hurt. The man whose heart she broke over and over and over again has bought her. And her heart sinks. Because in her mind she goes, I know why he bought me. He wants to get revenge. He wants to hurt me like I hurt him. He owned her and could do what he wanted with her now. He approaches her and she closes her eyes and braces herself for verbal and physical abuse. But instead of hearing that, he gets close to her and he whispers into her ear, I love you more than you'll ever know. Let's go home. People, that's not the story of Gomer and Hosea. That's a story of me and you. That's exactly what Jesus did for each one of us. We left him and exchanged his love for a lot of different lovers, don't we? We exchange our love for him for money, for power, for prestige, and for the pleasure of sex. He came in the flesh and lived a perfect life, fulfilled every single law that we have no hope of ever keeping. He earned perfect righteousness before God. And when he came to the auction block of Golgotha, he saw me and you standing there, stark naked, ashamed. And he willingly took our place. And he paid it with his righteousness. He said, God, take my righteousness and give it to Blake and give me his sin and punish me instead of him. In that one act, he said to each one of us here today that believe this, I love you. That's what he said. Three days later, he rose again from the dead and he looks at each one of us and he says, now let's go home. That's the context in which we read, you are not your own, you're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And I pray, Spirit, that you will apply it perfectly to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me as we sing our hymn in celebration, understanding that what he has done has bought us back, and we are God's people now.
Hear these words from Scripture and be encouraged this week. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. Thank you.